Hi, everyone, and welcome to Homecoming, a podcast that features the diverse stories, insights, and experiences of Asians, Asian Americans, and Pacific Islanders. I'm your host, Angel Rena, and thank you so much for tuning back in. So today's episode is the second in a three-part series that I'm recording with three different Community and Multicultural Office, or CAMD scholars, at Phillips Academy, a boarding high school in Massachusetts. And these scholars, who are usually seniors, are chosen each year by a panel from the Community and Multicultural Office at Andover to pursue independent research projects during the summer related to diversity and multiculturalism. And these students work closely with their faculty advisor and also write a research paper and make a presentation to the Andover community during the school year. And this past school year, there were six Camby scholars and all of them worked extremely hard and researched topics from minority focused casts in television to the impact of stereotypes and stress on the academic performance of low income black and Latinx students. And in the first episode of the Camby Scholars series, Natalie Shen came on the podcast and talked about her research on Asian representation in visual media. So definitely check that episode out if you have not yet. But in this second episode of the series, I'm here with Tenzin Sherlung, a 2019-2020 Camdi scholar whose research project titled Children of Refugees, Reclamation and the Courage to Tell Our Stories centers stories from the Tibetan community in Boston, as well as other Southeast Asian refugees and children of refugees. But enough from me, Tenzin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on to Homecoming. How have you been? How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. How are you holding up during quarantine? <laughs> um, it, yeah, I'm good. I'm blessed. Um, I have a lot more access to information than some other people in my community. So um, it's just been a matter of perspective and mm -hmm. um, keeping up with the news and also uh, staying in touch with your loved ones. Awesome. That's a good mindset to have. So first, before we get into all of the questions that I've prepared, do you want to first introduce yourself and you can talk about where you're from, where you call home, what activities and organizations you're a part of at Andover, and anything else you want the homecoming listeners to know about you? Okay, sure. Um, so my name is Tenzi Shenlong, and um, I go by Tenzin. And my PGPs are she, her, hers, and I'm currently a senior, like you said, at PA. Um, I have lived most of my life in Malden, Massachusetts, which is where I currently am. Um, and at Andover, I have um, spent four years volunteering with the Youth Development Organization based in Lawrence and am a part of Body Empowerment and Positivity, the campus's first club with the mission of spreading awareness uh, about body standards and um, intersectional discussion that is sorely lacking. Awesome. And do you want to talk a little bit about your ethnic background too, just so the listeners know, because we'll get in we'll we'll get into that a little more later on, but do you want to sort of preface that first? Sure, yes. Um I don't know if we really have a time for a history lesson, but I <laughs> am um a first generation Tibetan American. Both my parents escaped from Tibet. Um 
well into their 20s, um, and most of my loved ones and blood relatives are currently still in Tibet. And with the Sino-Tibetan conflict going on, it has always been a source of um, tension and conflict. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, And yeah, so before we get into your CAMD research and you know, that whole process, I just want to get to know you better because when I went to Andover, I of course saw you around and I heard that you were just a really kind and amazing person, but I don't think we've ever had a full conversation before. So this is really exciting for me to be able to talk with you. And I really just want to know more for the sake of this podcast, but also for myself, like more about your Tibetan identity and how that has shaped you to be the person you are today. So first, growing up in your town in Malden, Massachusetts, like were there a lot of other Tibetans in your community? And, and what was it like growing up Tibetan American in, in your specific town in Malden? Um, firstly, thank you so much. I'm also really excited to get to know you better. Um, and I'm really honored to be on this podcast with you. But um, so I actually was born in Chicago. So there is a, a pretty substantial Tibetan community there. In my entire life, we've moved between various Tibetan communities, but majority of my life has been in Malden or at least the greater Boston um, area where um, there continues to be more and more Tibetans. And so what was it like to be Tibetan um, in Malden? So there was Sunday school. Um, We would have Tibetan lessons and um, lessons in traditional songs and dance. And there was always a community um, to celebrate big holidays with. But a big part of being Tibetan and being Tibetan American is participating in peaceful protests and um, candlelight vigils and uh, marches because of the inability to ignore the Sino-Tibetan conflict. And so I'd say that um, growing up, I definitely took my community for granted, and I didn't realize that until I entered a PWI. But um, it was definitely uh, a community that did its best to celebrate our culture, but it part of our culture is our history and the current oppression going on. Um, was something that we were all painfully aware of and did our best to raise awareness um, in our state of Massachusetts. Oh, wow. So so it seemed like your Tibetan identity was pretty powerful and like the Tibetan community in Malden consisted of quite a few people, which is which is surprising. Like like how how many people would you say this community consisted of? Um. Okay, I'm really bad. I have no idea um, in terms of numbers. It's a lot bigger now. Um, I can give you the numbers for who, sh- how many people showed up for the New Year's parties. Um, so yeah, so growing up, there were like um, maybe 500 people and that number is going more and more. But um, yeah, so there would be, and this is for Losa, which is Tibetan New Year. So this is the biggest party of the year. So anybody who is Tibetan is sure to show up. And this is not just from Malden, but also from Boston and Medford and stuff. Yeah, so that was a pretty big community considering how many of us there really are now outside of Tibet. And um, 
yeah, like I said, it was a, it was a really powerful community, like you said. Um, and yeah, I am really proud to be a part of it. That's awesome. So would, would you say like that the Boston area just has a lot of Tibetans compared to other places in the U.S.? Um, I'd say that it is a pretty substantial amount of Tibetans, but um, not as much as some other places. It's I, I personally have come to believe that the Boston Tibetans um, sort of settled down in uh, Boston after moving out of New York City. So the biggest amounts of Tibetans, like the population, Tibetan populations are in, I believe, New York City and um, Chicago. But yeah, so uh, those are, there are some pretty big populations there in the United States, um, but there are also pretty big populations in Switzerland um, as a result of a refugee relocation program and in the refugee settlements in Dharamsala, India. So yeah, so I've had the um, opportunity to have lived in um, Dharamsala, Chicago, New York, and now in Malden. So I've had some ties to a lot of these communities. Wow, that's amazing. And you also talked about how when you were growing up, it was really important for you and also your community to acknowledge this Tibetan oppression and have solidarity with one another and also acknowledge like the history of oppression and genocide in Tibet. And I think that's so, so important. So like you you kind of touched on this a little bit, but how did like with vigils and protests, but like can you talk a little bit more about how this manifested? Like, were these protests often? Were they like based in Massachusetts? Like what kind of work, what kind, like what other work did you guys maybe do surrounding the issue? Um, so I think that there has been a reshift in terms of how these protests and raising awareness, camp- like campaigns raising awareness have been manifesting. Um, especially as um, the new generation of Tibetan Americans have started to grow up and um, take on leadership positions. But when I was growing up, it was, um, it was, so there was a weekly visual in Harvard Square that I remember my mom taking me and my younger sister to literally every week. And so that was a really, um, that's a really strong memory I have. And I remember we would gather in the, even if it was super cold and even in the snow, we would hold um, like little cups and then uh, stick candles through the cups. And then we would have candles um, so that the wax falls into the little, the little cups um, and we'd pray together. And sometimes there would be um, people um, insulting us or these so Chinese people in the area that were obviously offended at our protest. And that's, so that's one memory or series of memories that's really strong in my in my memory um and then another really big protest would be every year on the anniversary of um the march 10th uprising in tibet there is um a coming together of as many tibetans in in the in the area and we gather in front of the of boston city hall and we'd march around Park Square and stuff. So these two are the ones that I remember most. But now as like, it's the age of technology, you know, so 
I've seen the um, creation of a lot of really, really amazing um, organization and nonprofits by the younger generation of Tibetans who are using technology to um, really spread that like out. And it's been uh, really interesting to see how they've been super involved in these protests that have been going on since they were growing up, but also um, been taking responsibility and starting new like campaigns and now during the pandemic zoom sessions with experts talking about culturally sensitive ways to explore um, the anxiety that comes up during the pandemic quarantine and like it's really amazing the work that they're doing so that's that's sort of the things that i'm really really proud to uh see happening wow that all sounds so great and good for good for you guys to continue with these traditions and start your own campaigns like that sounds amazing so how has Tibet and Tibetan culture and history impacted the way you see and sort of approach the world I know it's kind of a loaded question but (laughs) (laughs) um one thing going going continuing on with the idea of um the protesting um oppression Ever since I was very little, I've been exposed to um, a type of pushback to the very, like, from the very introduction, uh, from my very introduction of saying my name is Tenzin, or um, saying that I am Tibetan, there are individuals in any space that I am in that will try to correct me or, or try to get me to rephrase what I'm saying or just push back in any way shape or form no matter how passively or actively and so having been exposed to that um and also experienced it myself for as long as I can remember there is an inability on my part to not understand how um like a single thing can be viewed very differently so I think to think of that positively it's um there's like an inability to shelter yourself or children in our community from um, people that they're people that just dislike you or are offended by your very existence. And I think um, that's some, an experience that's unique to minorities. So that is one way that um, I have been trying to find empowerment in my disempowerment. Um, So thinking about how I am, still lucky to be able to learn from this pushback and the conflict that follows me wherever I go to be more um, open-minded but also aware so in order to not only protect myself but to grow as a person. And do you feel like that pushback to your identity and also the way you viewed your own identity changed as from when you were growing up in Malden to coming to Andover and what and which sort of ethnic and racial or they don't don't even need to be along those lines but like what kind of communities did you find the most solidarity with after you came to Andover um so I didn't identify or well there's like an inability to not identify as Asian American because when you're in America and you look the way I look you're undoubtedly Asian. Um, And then sometimes they add the hyphen in American to it and sometimes they don't. But um, I didn't really view myself as Asian American or really come to terms with that categorization 
until um, I entered Andover. That was my first year. Um, and my house counselor was expecting me to find my community at um, Asian Society and Andover Chinese Students Association, I believe, which was which was actually a, um, a very lively and very involved organization. I think it was one of the more um, more involved clubs at the time. But um, obviously, um, that was not a place that I could easily just like jump into so that going head first into trying to find a community right then and there when surrounded by first of all Chinese students and I don't want to like this I don't want to do a disservice to um like Chinese people as a group but also there are differences in beliefs and um way that history is being interpreted and read um that cannot be ignored and I don't I will say that as amazing and welcoming as um that community was to me there was a sense of not belonging partially in my mind that was really strong but also there was there's some things that like you can sense so that was part of the reason why um so as a result of going straight into that club and expecting to find my people, I guess so strongly, or as a result of my house counselor trying to encourage me, um, I think I was quick to lock into a type of thinking that it was almost impossible for me to be a part of that community. So um, from then on, I sort of avoided that part of that club entirely. And I, I realize now that I was sort of closed-minded of me, and I wish that I had gotten to be a part of it, not, like, because it definitely wasn't an affinity club. So um, I sort of regret that, but that that was a very real experience for me. So in that sense, I was really, really desperate to hold on to my Tibetan American identity, and I was one of two Tibetan kids at school, um, so it was a little hard. But um, when I couldn't really find solidarity or community with um, what, well, at least it felt like that to me my freshman year with Asian society, because sometimes it feels like there is an, uh, the group of people that are speaking at the club meetings, it felt like they were all um, from very different backgrounds from me, despite being all Asian and Asian American. So in that sense, um, I had like a bit of um turmoil with identifying as Asian American because I felt like as much as I wanted to find community in that sense um at at our school I was also I also felt like I was being silenced as a Tibetan American if I introduced myself as Asian American or fully embraced that so that was that was what I was feeling for a very long time um and so I found more solidarity as a student of color and as a um, student from a low-income background in a linguistically isolated household, I found actually more sol solidarity with just, like, I'd enter Camdi and there'd be people there that I could have conversation with. Um, but also, I I got grew really close to, like, the faculty advisor of Afro-Latin and um, Afro-Latinx community members, and so that was where I first started feeling as if I could have a space where I felt truly comfortable 
to share what I was going through and to just, you know, have community. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes total sense. I feel like also, like maybe your counselor, your house counselor wasn't too, wasn't thinking too much about this historical trauma as well. And I feel like when this expectation that you, since you look a specific way, since you look Asian, you have to join Asian society, or that's where you have to find your community, like that expectation can also be very burdening. And I like completely understand that. Um, But I'm really glad that you were able to find solidarity with people. And I think it's also really great sometimes when we yeah, like we can find solidarity along other lines too, right? Not necessarily race, like people from low-income backgrounds. Like that's something that I also found a home. That's like a community I also found a home in while I was at Andover too. So um, yeah, I completely understand. Yeah, I understand where you're you're coming from. Um, And so would you say that you felt the most supported by faculty of color? So something else that was really weird during my four years was the, like, I, at least I perceived it as a uh, gradual incline and turnover of faculty of color. So, um, yeah, for sure, I found it easier to talk to faculty of color, um, regardless of whether or not they were strictly Asian. But I saw that, I don't know, before I could get to... um, know somebody it felt like they were all like leaving and that might be that might go into how PWIs need to better support faculty of color but um that was another thing that I noticed and it made me feel even more sort of isolated because it's it's like you see all these adults that still that obviously didn't feel completely welcome in this community like how am I supposed to handle it um so there was that but I do think I sort of latched onto a specific group of community members like adults faculty um but at the same time there was only it was only to a certain extent or degree Mm -hmm, yeah the faculty of color turnover rate like there there's a lot that we can say about that Mm -hmm. but I want to make sure that we get to your candy research so if it's okay I'll just move on to that um so yeah you were obviously chosen to be a CAMD scholar for a reason and you must have put in so much work over the summer and during the school year to prepare for you know your presentation and your paper um but first can you just talk me through what exactly your research was about okay um, so f- firstly, a big part of my research was about better understanding the recent development of, or at least the recent acknowledgement of intergenerational trauma, and then secondhand PTSD, or second generational PTSD. And I looked at that, um, and specifically research about the experiences of Southeast Asian refugees in the United States. So how... So the before, during, and after of their displacement and relocation in the U.S., and then how their children experience these really, um, well, I won't say completely unfortunate because I feel like part of their, I think it's a big part of their community and it should not be completely 
um, <laughs> advertise as just misery or suffering, but it's unfortunate that they have to overcome so many barriers. And part of those barriers is the um, lack of resources and awareness devoted to this trauma that's passed on and inherited. So looking at that community specifically as um, like looking at how they have continued um, after relocation and what support was lacking in terms of um, like what was offered during their initial relocation that led to much lower income levels and much higher rates of linguistic isolation. And then thinking about how um, less healthcare coverage and all these things translates into how the the new generation of Southeast Asian Americans grow up and how um, how they have actually grown up to um, empower themselves in their community and how that is so important to not only um, like for them to self empower but to also um, engage in storytelling as a means of healing and recovering from what their community has endured and then I looked at how that like that phenomenon of storytelling and also um inherited trauma can carry over into other communities of refugees and how looking at what has already happened can help the U.S. better prepare for new um arrivals and streams of refugees in the world today but also I looked at in, in preparation for my presentation specifically how even students from these backgrounds can be better supported in PWI. So yeah. Yeah, that's great. And like two really uh, two things about your research slash your presentation that really stood out to me. Um, I mean, there were lots of great things, but two things that I thought were really amazing were that like one, you were you weren't like you were focusing on gener like not only the refugees but also generations after them right and i think that's so important because a lot of the times people are like okay one and done like refugees how can we support them and it's like yeah that that's really important but also we need to think about how this is affecting like their children and their grandchildren and like generations after them and that was really great and another thing i think it was so cool that you centered their stories because once again I feel like a lot of the time America slash white America can really see minorities and refugees as sort of they don't they don't see them as humans and and you referred to this in your presentation like they are seen as statistics or like objects and not humans and I think focusing and centering on storytelling really really humanize them and I think you did an absolutely wonderful job with that so um, can you also walk me through how slash when you came up with this idea to do this research and why you sort of wanted to participate in this Candy program in the first place? So, um, do you know Ty Lusher? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so Ty Lusher was the reason why this all happened, actually. Um, so my, um, proposal was actually in a very different place. This came from a conversation um, with Tyler Usher about mindfulness, um, which I personally believe is um, a form of cultural appropriation. And I feel as if um, 
the the recent phenomenon and trend of becoming more um, engaged with mindfulness, like uh, what, like you said, white America, um, becoming super interested in mindfulness. Um, although it seems to be helping a lot of people, I I believe it's it's problematic in how it's stripping the history and the origins um, of this practice and and like marketing it in a capitalistic manner. Or, but enough about that. So in that conversation, I was talking to um, Tyler Sher about that, and she encouraged me to um, pr- to send in a proposal. Um, and the theme that we both like, this is the theme that inspired it all was reclamation. So I had shared with her the story of my parents and how they fled. They had to risk everything, sacrifice everything in order to be able to practice Tibetan Buddhism. And part of Tibetan Buddhism is um, meditation and um, what essentially mindfulness. And so thinking about how much they had to sacrifice to be able to do this, and then seeing that in contrast with um, some of these white mindfulness speakers that our our school was um, consistently bringing in and paying a lot of money for. Um, and there was a lot, there's a lot behind that story, but there was obviously um, a sense, a feeling that made me, like, I, I needed to talk to someone about that, and Tyler, she was there, and she and I both realized that um, I needed to reclaim certain things, um, whether that was done uh, at, like, a community-wide level through like a KMD project or something mm-hmm. it was um it was she gave me a lot of great advice and then she was like I think that you can you should propose a KMD scholarship and so I did and my research was going to be about specifically the Tibetan community and I had narrowed it down to looking at um trauma but the, the problem with that was there was a it was firstly very, very emotionally exhausting because of how personal it was. And I had never done such a like a big project or something. So there was already some anxiety on my part. Of, and, you know, my imposter syndrome was was just living and thriving off of the, all these feelings. Um, and so mm. it became like it, it didn't it wasn't going into uh, it wasn't becoming a scholarly work that I could present and um that other people could learn from you know what I mean and on top of that there was like a lack of research that's being done because of well there was just a lack of research on specifically the Tibetan population and community and it seemed like there wasn't hadn't been enough time passed maybe I don't know there was just wasn't enough to go on especially considering how new intergenerational trauma is but also like the Tibetan community is a very small population, um, relatively. And so with all of that, um, I, there were a lot of conversations that went on behind the scenes. And then, um, I realized that I definitely wanted to continue with the theme of reclamation and intergenerational trauma. And so that was part of the reason why storytelling was something that I prioritized because this is where I started. But then I, um, was um talking to Miss CH so and she introduced me to Dr. Oi who Dr. Pitsmite Oi who was such a, a great person um and she advised me on my research but also helped me dive into 
some pre-existing research uh, surrounding the Southeast Asian uh, American community and the Southeast Asian refugees. Um, and so that's how my project sort of took a slight turn. And then that's how it ended up being the way it was. Awesome. And so after you came up with this idea, you applied and got into the program. Um, and then you move on to your actual research, right? Which you did last summer. So you talked a little bit about this, but what did your what was it like to research when there wasn't that much content out there that you were looking for? Like, were there particular books or article that were really helpful, informative? And like, also, I know a big part of your research was also doing in-person interviews and talking to people and asking people to share their stories. So how, what was it like to do that as well? So the first thing I did when um, I started my research was uh, sign up to volunteer at the Immigrant Learning Center in Malden. Um, and I feel like this was a really, really, really uh, important part of my research. Um, obviously, it didn't fulfill the scholarly work requirement um, in the proposal, in the in the scholarship. But um, coming from my background, and I think that um, a lot of Asian American and Pacific Islanders can um, attest to, like, this idea of, like you said earlier, how um, a lot of America and white America would deem people in my community as even second-class citizens because um, of many but also their inability to speak English. And so that, I feel, is an amazing part of being um, Asian American and Pacific Islander. It's like growing up exposed to linguistic isolation and from that being able to um, understand that like brilliance is not defined by a person's ability to speak English and also being able to learn from places that aren't traditionally recognized by our westernized education systems. And so for me, that meant that I wanted to dive back into the community, the Malden community, um, some Malden community of immigrants that had taught me so much and brought me eventually to Phillips Academy. And this center, the Immigrant Learning Center, was a center that was um, very personally meaningful. It was uh, my mom had signed up for classes there on multiple occasions. Um, all time, all the time she signed up, she had to drop out eventually to work or to take care of uh, us kids. But um, for as I can remember, uh, a lot, of, a lot of the time that I spent there was surrounded by people who had sacrificed everything to come here. Um, many of them refugees, and so I couldn't think of a better way to truly supplement um, the research that would be fully recognized than to um, give back to this amazing place and volunteer. And so that was the first thing I did. Um, I volunteered there all summer. I met some amazing people. Um, and it really reminded me about the importance of doing my research. It kept me accountable more than anything. Um, so that was the that would be my first answer. Um, but I would also wanted to give a shout out to, I believe it's pronounced CIRAC. Southeast Asian Resource Action Center, um, and they, they're like this really amazing group of, I believe, Southeast Asian Americans, um, so young Southeast Asian American people 
who are advocates for the community, and you can tell from the recent work during the COVID-19 crisis how they're translating resources and like helping their community access stimulus checks. It's um, this this organization is doing really really meaningful work, and I um, actually read a lot of their statistics and incorporated a lot of their statistics um, about their community in my um, project. So so working at the Immigrant Learning Center and um, checking out this amazing, amazing nonprofit organization was definitely a, a big part, an amazing part of my research. Um, and then talking in person um, and sharing stories, it was um, mostly in very casual settings. And I felt like that was, it felt right to do that casually. Um, and these people, whoever I asked, they were all people I had known for literally the longest time. And even the, my, even the people at PA that I had asked who shared their experiences for the paper and the presentation, they had been people that had, I had known since literally day one. Um, and so I felt like that was really important in order to um, make sure that they felt safe and I felt safe. And, you know, I didn't want to just ask them to share everything and then just leave them dry. I felt like that was something that um, is done a lot when um, minorities or <laughs> other cultures are uh, researched or written about by um, white, white America. Um, and so that was something that was really important to me. And so when we sat down and shared, it was actually... Most of the time, it was actually a lot longer than what I um, incorporated in the paper, and I felt like that was that was just right. And personally, I felt so affirmed because uh, I am a child of refugees, so everything they were sharing, it was affirming it, and that was the solidarity. It was it was a solidarity that I had, I had never felt on campus before, um, and so it was especially meaningful to me. And so I took away more. Um, from those interviews than anything else. And I'm, I'm actually uh, really happy that I got the chance to do the interviews because there's a lot that I learned from that and took away from that that I wouldn't have been able to if I wasn't actually there interviewing. Approximately how many people did you interview? Formally, maybe like uh, six or seven, but informally a lot more. Well, there was mm-hmm. just like, phone calls or something or I mean there's like this even one time when we were just when I was like um talking to someone through like beams and it was just uh, obviously it didn't make sense to really incorporate it but it was just that shared sense of um like that shared experience and being able to you know um feel solidarity with someone through oh well, I guess in this situation it means do count as storytelling and so that I felt like that embodied what I was trying to argue more than anything. Um, so yeah, that's how many. Next question. So you did your CAMD presentation in December of 2019, and your presentation covered a lot. You told stories and talked about your own family history and talked about the history of refugee settlement in the U.S. and the trauma that refugees face. Um, how how were you able to translate all of your research into this like hour and a half long presentation in in a way that was digestible to the general PA community? Um, so for sure, I focus on 
um, the part of my paper that was devoted to talking about the support that a student from this background would need at a institution like ours. I felt that um, honing in on this was the best way to ensure that whoever showed up, um, because it wasn't an affinity space, it could literally be anyone in the community, uh, whoever showed up would feel a sense of attachment to the story and the experiences, like uh, a sense of responsibility, even obligation that they couldn't ignore. Um, I feel too often when, if there's a presentation just about like the history and then statistics, it's easy to be like, that's horrible. Um, and then sit there for an hour and then leave with like no more than a couple of facts. But thinking about it in terms of your own community is something I felt was particularly powerful. And this is actually um, inspired by a presentation, a Camdi presentation from my friend Tiomo, who is also a Camdi scholar, and she actually had a presentation in the fall. And so seeing her open up her presentation to a more, to include like, um, like an activity, like in a workshoppy manner, I felt like that was something that I really, really liked. And so I copied her. Um, and so that's where um, we incorporated a few more scenarios that was shared during the research part of it. And um, yeah, that's, I feel like that was the best way to do it. But also, um, I definitely prioritized having time and space for um, Dr. Pitsmite-Uy to share her story. Um, yeah, and I think it worked out pretty well, but we did go over the time limit for sure. <laughs> I thought that was, it was totally okay. And you had such a big crowd come out. Like, I was so impressed. I was like, yes, Tenzin, <laughs> yes. And one part of your presentation that I was I thought was super powerful was at the at the end when you started talking about TJ, who was a child of refugees and a sophomore at a boarding school like Andover and um, is linguistically isolated and comes from a low income background. And as you mentioned in your presentation, TJ wasn't their real name, but sort of all of the situations and experiences that TJ faces at their um, predominantly white institution uh, were were real life experiences of minorities and children of refugees that were told to you. And some of the situations that you brought up, for example, were navigating homework and filling out the FAFSA and the college admissions process and trying to get a mental health counselor. So why was it so important for you to center on these specific experiences and experiences specifically at a predominantly white institution? So part of it was um, I wanted to make the most of um, the valuable resource that is Dr. Oi because she is a professional, um, a, diverse, a diversity training professional. She has so much experience um, working in the field of education and then talking about the barriers that um, Southeast Asian American students face and other minorities face in whatever institution, but also primarily white institutions. And so part of her presentation and her speaking was um, sharing with the community um, and the audience how to better engage with these students. And so to complement that, we framed the presentation around the idea of diversity and like truly committing to diversity. 
I personally felt like um, too often the idea of diversity or youth from every quarter or something seems to many people to be um, about the acceptance letter, you know, admission, and then like recording the number and stuff. But I think a lot of people forget that as amazing as um, our school was, um, diversity goes way beyond that acceptance letter. It's also about continuing to support the student like any other student, but also in a culturally sensitive and truly intentional way. Um, and so going off with framing it um, in a way that um, was super specific to our community um, in order to engage whoever showed up more if more properly and efficiently, this was also a way of um, going into uh, the importance of true diversity and inclusion. Um, so rethinking and reshaping that. And that's where TJ comes in. So um, the scenarios that TJ has to experience are all real stories, like you said. Um, and some of the people that uh, showed up for the presentation were super surprised to, to see that TJ experienced what they experienced. So what we had was we broke up everyone into little groups, and then we um, had a sec uh, a couple of questions about them that they could discuss as a group. And so they would be looking at a scenario, but also being forced to think back to all the reasons why TJ would specifically have um, this experience. So firstly, TJ's pronouns were they, them, there. So it was a great way for everyone to practice using proper pronouns. Um, and then for them to discuss in a group. So in a, a group, there would be a couple of faculty members, there would be a couple of um, students, and then there would um, sometimes be a CAMD staff member or something. So talking about that, they would be forced to rethink even something as simple as not knowing how to approach a teacher during conference. And then I hopefully, at least the, the intention was that by thinking in that moment and hearing what other students were saying and others other like members of the community were saying they would um, take that understanding of everything that goes into that moment and then um, take it with them throughout the rest of their like through through any other space. So um, that application of what we had talked about would engage would allow for the, like a coming together in that moment, but also um, like a, a big takeaway in like thinking and being open to uh, better understand how different experiences shape um, each moment. Yeah, I feel like your, in your presentation, I feel like it was a huge like at sign at like Andover and other predominantly white institutions. <laughs> and I mean, I thought it was great. Like sometimes, sometimes like you need to, you need to call out people and like, like pre pressure I don't, I don't know I don't know if that's the right word but like push them to like stand up and rise up right and mm -hmm. like I think I I mean the people who came to your presentation were obviously obviously listening but I hope the people who needed to hear it the most were listening as well like mm -hmm. faculty and staff board of trustees like these people need to hear talks like yours you know Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and so after all of your research and work, what do you think that 
first of all, friends and families of refugees and their children and generations after them? Like, what can they do better to support them? Um, I think that ultimately it's about, I think the, the lasting issue is the intergenerational trauma and how it never fails to be inherited and passed on, but it can't, so I'm, I'm definitely not a medical professional or um, somebody who uh, knows more about the logistics of, or uh, as somebody who isn't a medical professional, I can't really speak to how, how that um, process, the culturally sensitive um, process of um, treating that trauma and these uh, really high rates of PTSD, like how that would come to be. but of the research that I did, it seems that storytelling is the best way for the community to heal um, or to begin to heal. Obviously, um, all of these mental health issues are very are very serious and they, they really require uh, medical professionals, but also the storytelling that can happen, that has happened traditionally, um, is a great way for communities to pass on their culture and also celebrate their culture with the new generation while um, sharing the trauma that they have, they all have inherited um, and begin to heal. So yeah, I'd say that the best way to support each other is to communicate and to, you know, preserve that tradition. And what about predominantly white institutions and faculty and staff at PWIs? Like, and also government, sort of at an institutional level, like what can they do to support refugees and generations after them? I think the people that would best be able to support anyone um, going through it from these backgrounds is somebody who has experienced it themselves. More than anything, whether it's government or a PWI, what they need is representation. Um we were talking about earlier the fact the faculty of color first of all they're very seriously outnumbered um the diversity that they're committing to um in the student body should also be reflected in the faculty and there should also be support to maintaining or, or supporting the faculty themselves so there isn't so much turnover and then uh, i think that this goes into government too i the government is a mess, um, but in the future, I hope that they will um, incorporate more voices. This does, this goes way beyond just um, refugees and children refugees, like incorporating more um, voices is so super, super important. Um, and on that note, I think that voter registration should be reformed. I feel like it's currently, it's not equally accessible. Um, and so I think that that's a great place to start. All right, Tenzin. So we definitely covered a lot today, but before we end the episode, I always like to do a round of rapid fire questions with our guests, um, just so listeners can get to know them in a more fun and lighthearted context. So Tenzin, are you ready for your rapid fire question? I am ready. <laughs> All right. First one. Favorite class you've taken at Andover? Um, Post-colonial India elective with Miss Kirchie. Oh, okay. 
do you have any unique talents you'd like to share with us? Uh, I could jump really high while jump roping. Okay. All right. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favorite Tibetan tradition? I love um, food. So I'd say uh, Loping. I love eating Loping, and I think that's tradition. Um, Loping is... Uh, how do I explain it? It's spicy. It's summer food. Um, I think it's, it's, it's similar to, do you know, green bean chili oil, green mm-hmm. bean with chili oil, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like a noodle, but not really, but it's like super spicy and super good. So yeah. Mm-hmm. That sounds amazing. And you know what's funny? Okay, every time we ask someone like on the podcast so far, like what's your favorite X tradition? They always <laughs> food, is it not? Always food. <laughs> <laughs> ah, of course. I mean, not surprised. <laughs> and finally, final rapid fire question. What's your favorite memory from this entire CAMD scholar process? Um, My favorite memory was probably... Oh, and during my presentation, at the very beginning, there was uh, a, a, lo- a couple of, there was a long period of time of, during which there was um, technical difficulties. And during that wait, I was having the best conversation with my friends who were all at the, the first circle table. And we all had cannolis and they really helped calm me down because I was so nervous. Um, so that's, that's probably my favorite memory. All right, Tenzin, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Any last things you want to mention? And also, where can people find you or maybe your presentation and paper, if if you're comfortable sharing that, if they want to reach out to you about all of your research? Um, no, th- firstly, thank you for having me. Um, I'm really glad that I didn't miss that DM. Um, but people can find me at, um, at Tenzin Charlong at Instagram. Um, and I don't really know how they would access the paper, but if you really, really want to, and you seem like a good person, I'll be more than happy to send you a link, um, over a DM or something. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tenzin. Thank you for having me.